We are continuing in our study of the book of John, and this morning we find ourselves in John chapter 12. Just a, a little bit of kind of a perspective of, of where this fits into the gospel of John, which is a 21 chapter book in the New Testament. John chapter 12 is the last chapter in which we see uh, Jesus um, finishing up his, his uh, kind of earthly ministry. John 13 will pick up uh, the beginning of Jesus' great passion where he begins to have the last meal. So this is one of the last uh, historical moments that John captures for us, and indeed it is a beautiful story, one that I uh, love myself personally, but one that I look forward to preaching to you this morning. So um, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, you can turn there now, or if you have a bulletin, you can find it located there. Hear the word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I've got a kind of a small confession. I'm not a huge food truck guy. Like, when the food truck festival hits this main street, not, you know, it's, I'm just like, eh, Okay. But if I go to a food truck fair, there's one food truck in particular that I'm looking for. It's the taco food truck. I really feel like you can't go wrong with a taco food truck at any of food truck things. Sometimes these food trucks are overpriced, not really good, and you're not even getting that good of a portion. But a taco is a taco. You get three tacos, and you're going to be good. But what I love about food truck tacos is that almost every time, every time, they take a nice little piece of cilantro and put the cilantro on the taco. And it's this beautiful blend of savory and, and, and herb. And it's just refreshing. I love cilantro. Cilantro is so fresh and tasty. It, it accentuates all the things about good food. But here's the thing. I know I love cilantro. But not everyone loves cilantro. In fact, I see some people in the here Shaking their head, I despise cilantro. And I have been told, and I, I can't, it's hard for me to believe this, but I have been told that some people, when they put cilantro in their mouth, it's the equivalent of putting a bar of soap into your mouth and chewing. Like, I don't understand that. But the thing about cilantro is this. You either love it or you hate it. Now, if you know, I, 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 whatever, I don't know about cilantro, that means you love it. You just have no idea what you're tasting. Sometimes it's such a small thing. But with cilantro, you can't be indifferent. You either love it or you hate it. 
I think it's the same thing with Jesus. Those who truly interact with Jesus, those who are like listening to him, around him, spend time with him, those people, they cannot be indifferent with Jesus. Jesus is such a character, such a figure, that regardless of the way you interact with him, he's either gonna bring about a great hatred or great love, just like cilantro. Indifference should never be a word that is uttered around Jesus. But yet, I think this is the reality of so many people, and it could be of you, that you are truly indifferent to Jesus. You, you're just like, eh, whatever about Jesus. He's a good guy, whatever. I'm just gonna live my life. What I would say is, you're probably not interacting with Jesus. You've not spent time with him. And if this is you, and if this is your neighbor, it's important to begin to interact with Jesus again. If we fail to interact with Jesus, I think we make a massive mistake on so many levels. For one, Jesus is without question the most significant individual to have ever lived. I mean, no one, this is, I, I don't, I'm not even speaking hyperbolically or as a, like a pastor. No one has ever affected history or time or thought more than Jesus. So you fail to interact with Jesus, you're failing to interact with so much of our culture, of our thought. You're doing yourself a disservice by not interacting with Jesus. I'm not even saying you have to love Jesus. I'm just saying it's important that you not be indifferent towards Jesus. He's that significant. To dismiss him is to dismiss so much and to live ignorantly. So we need to interact with Jesus. And when we do, the indifference to him that might exist in our hearts or in the hearts of our neighbors will either disappear or form into one of these, love or hate. Now there are three characters in the story we read this morning that illustrates this love, hate, not indifference of Jesus. And the three characters that I want us to focus on this morning are the chief priests, Judas, and Mary. In particular, I wanna ask this question in interacting with these three characters. What are they seeing in Jesus that makes it impossible to be indifferent towards him? So ultimately, I want us to push you to look at Jesus, that you might not have indifference in your heart so that you might interact with him and that you might choose to love him or to hate him rather than being different. So let's consider these three characters that we encounter in this story. We'll encounter them the way that I presented them to, kind of a backwards perspective, looking at the chief priest first, Judas, and then Mary. So let's look at these characters. First, the first character that we interact with, or I guess the last character that we interact with in the story, the one we'll, we'll look at first, are the chief priests. These priests aren't necessarily in the party that Jesus is being honored at, but they're on the outside looking in. And in verse 10 and 11, we see what they're doing. They're seeing this, and they make plans, verse 10, to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews are going away, perceivably from them, and believing in Jesus from this reading, it's pretty obvious that the chief, the chief priests see in Jesus a significant threat, a threat to their livelihood, a threat to their identity, a threat to their religion, and a threat to their families. Essentially, Jesus is threatening everything that is valuable to them, and they want him dead. But let's look at this threat and consider this from a different perspective, from their shoes. Let's first look at the date in which this took place. The very first verse, we see that this took place six days before Passover. 
Passover is the most important day in Judaism, a day in which the Jews recalled their deliverance from Egypt by God with Moses. To celebrate this, the Jews from all over the globe would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. They would sing songs on their way up to Jerusalem. These songs are called the Songs of Ascent, and if you do our community Bible reading, you'll know that's where we're at right now. There's songs that these people would sing as they're heading up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to prepare their heart to worship God. And these Jews are coming, and who are the ones responsible for the Passover? It's the chief priests. It's a big time in their life. The historian, the Jewish historian Josephus says that roughly two million Jews would come to Jerusalem for that week. I mean, think about that. Think about the parties, the festivities, the events, the messages, all the things that go into place for Passover that these chief priests are responsible for. Their significance, I better do a good job. Have you ever been in a situation where you have a lot of responsibility, you want to do a good job, and one of the things that you're thinking about is doing a good job so that people pat you on the back? This is what these chief priests are experiencing. This is a huge moment. Their identity is wrapped up into this. And there's one particular individual who's messing it all up. And that's Jesus. Jesus is raising people from the dead. He's healing people on the Sabbath, breaking the customs of their religion. And the Jews are going, wait, this guy's, this guy's pretty good. And they start to come to Jesus and they're really fascinated. And they're taking away the identity of these chief priests, and they can't stand it. To them, they see Jesus as a great challenge, a challenge to their identity, a challenge to their religion, a challenge to every part of their being, and they want him dead. We can think Jesus is a jerk for doing these things, because that's what the chief priest thought. But the reality is, what if Jesus is right? about taking all these people away from the chief priests? What if he's the one who's right and not the chief priests? If Jesus is right, and it is good that the people of, uh, that are going to Jesus, uh, they're going for good, then the challenge of Jesus reveals the error of the ways of the chief priests. The challenge reveals the truth of their heart. And Jesus is right to offer that challenge. If you've ever interacted with Jesus, you will know you will be challenged because our hearts are filled with idols, pursuing things that are not God. And in his love, he wants us to know what is right and good and true, what your heart was made for. And because of that, he will always offer a challenge. Jesus offered this challenge to the chief priests and they wanted him dead. Jesus offers a challenge to you. And the question is, do you want him dead or are you grateful for it? Have you ever been challenged by Jesus? His ways, his truth. If you haven't, you've never interacted with Jesus. Jesus will always challenge, with, challenge you. And that's why you can't be indifferent towards him. If you're listening to him, you're being challenged. He's gonna challenge the way you view dating. He's gonna challenge the way you do your marriage. He's gonna challenge the way you view your children. He's gonna challenge the way you view your religion. He's gonna challenge the way you view church. He's gonna challenge the way you live your life. He's gonna challenge the way you do business. He's gonna challenge everything in your life because he wants you to know 
ultimately, he's true and he's good. But the question is, have you heard this challenge? Or are you indifferent to him? Are you like the chief priest and angry at him? If, if so, that's okay. I'd rather be there than indifferent. Let us not be indifferent because when we interact with Jesus, he's gonna challenge us. So this is the first character, a character who is far from indifferent, a character who hates Jesus. But let's move to the second character, the second character we come to in this story, and that is Judas. It's quite easy to imagine how Judas viewed Jesus because we are told what he thinks, because he speaks it. He sees Mary pour this expensive ointment on Jesus' feet, and he looks and speaks to this situation going, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? The author continues to assist us in our imagination about what Judas is thinking about Jesus when in verse six he says, uh, the, uh, the author says, this is not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Here we have a very vivid picture of Judas's perspective of Jesus. Judas did not see in Jesus a challenge like the, chi the chief priest did. Judas saw in Jesus an object for his own personal gain. Consider how Judas did this, and it's incredibly subtle, and you can miss this if you're, if you're not paying attention. Based off of the reports of the Jewish priests, we know Jesus had this significant following of people. He taught with such authority and performed these miracles that so many people were coming to him and, and leaving the Jewish faith and flocking away with him. And anytime you have people coming to Jesus, you have influence, power, control, and money. Who was the one who had control of Jesus' money that was given to him? It was Judas. And Judas saw, what a great opportunity that I have for my own personal gain. This power, this popularity that Jesus is bringing, I'm gonna use it for my own benefit. So when people would give money, he'd take a coin or two, and he would continue to do that. But yet when a woman makes a lavish gesture towards Jesus, and this gesture that if done differently could have benefited Judas, he's willing to speak into the situation, and he's willing to speak with such an innocent religious charm. Couldn't this have been given to the poor? I mean, think of how subtle, think of how, I mean, that sounds so good, but he's saying these things that he might use it and continue to steal from Jesus. He's objectifying Jesus, and he's objectifying Jesus in religious language. It's disgusting. It's abusive, and we don't see it in broad daylight, but that's often what abuse is like. It's always behind the scenes carved and covered in religious language. But Jesus sees right through it. And we don't get any indication from this that Jesus knew that he was stealing money. That's an authorial perspective. But Jesus understands in this moment that Judas doesn't necessarily love himself. He understands that Judas only loves Jesus as long as he is serving Judas's purpose. In fact, I think it's easy to say that Judas doesn't love Jesus. He's abusing him, and therefore he hates him. And the fact becomes a reality that he hates him when he betrays Jesus and turns him into the chief priest for what? Money. Okay, Jesus is no good for me anymore. 
So I guess I'll get 30 more pieces of silver from him. I hate him. Judas sees Jesus, interacts with him, and he doesn't hate him in the sense that the chief priests did and want him dead in the sense that they did. He sees him as a, as a person to be used and abused. A few years ago, a man became the pastor of a church in Miami, Florida, and just down the road from his church was this adult men's nightclub. And it was compelled by him, and he was thinking about how, how can we as a church begin to love our neighbor, in particular, love the people that are associated with this nightclub. And so he began to speak into this church and just say, hey, I would love for you to consider ways in which you can be praying and thinking about serving and loving this nightclub. And a group of old ladies got together and said, you know what, we're going to begin praying, just as you said, Pastor. And they began to pray and, and say, Lord, how do we do this? Because this is awkward. This is weird, this is strange. How do we do this? And then one night, one of the employees' husband shot her. And she ended up in the hospital, and it made the newspapers. And those sweet old ladies who'd been praying for how to interact with her discover this. And they say, you know what? We have an opportunity here. So they put their money together, and, and I, I told her, like, when you think about Miami, Florida, this was like my area where I grew up. You gotta think about like retirees, got nothing to do, maybe widowed. I think of the Golden Girls. I just think of three of the Golden Girls, and they're, they buy these huge, they bought this huge bouquet, and they walk into the men's nightclub, and they find the manager at the bar, and they say, we saw what happened to one of your employees, and we wanted her to have this bouquet of flowers and let her know that we are praying for her. Nothing really happened until the next Easter. And the woman who had been recovering in the hospital recovered and she showed up to church on that Easter. What do you think the Judases of the church did? The Judases of the church couldn't stand it, couldn't be around it. How is a woman like that deserving of the grace of the mercy that I am. As you can think, such a story like that would definitely push to feel uncomfortable, but what it does is it exposes the ways that we objectify Jesus ourselves. How we look to our own obedience and say, yeah, look at how good I am, Jesus. I'm following you pretty good. We look, we look, things like this, stories like this challenge us the way we, we you know, like, objectify Jesus. So many in the church have a similar perspective of Jesus as Judas, especially in cultures where it's advantageous to be with Jesus like it was for Judas. We use him for a self, sense of self-righteousness. We use him for the random conversation we have with the pastor that we don't wanna have, but we have to have it and say it all the time. We just use it. We use it for business relationships to foster trust and camaraderie. We use it for personal clout, reputation, and financial gain. We use him, and I get it. It's beneficial to us. But are we interacting with Jesus for our own sake? Are we objectifying him in doing this? Or are we interacting with him in a different way? Judas reminds us that it is easy to objectify Jesus. And I wanna ask you the question, is this how you see Jesus? Is this how you see Jesus? Finally, we're gonna go to the third character. And the third character in the story is Mary. Mary doesn't say one word, but her actions speak 
loudly. It is true that actions can speak louder than words. The text says that Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. We can see in this that Mary sees in Jesus someone who is very valuable, someone who is worthy of a lavish and liberal act. But what is it? What is it that these actions speak to? What are the distinctive elements that these actions communicate about who Mary sees Jesus? And I think there's three. The first element that this act speaks to is that Mary sees Jesus as a king. As a king. It says that she anointed the feet of Jesus with her hair. Anointings were intended to be for kings. 1 Samuel 10, when Israel got their first king, Saul, Samuel comes and he anoints the head of Saul with oil. It's to mark the beginning of a kingly reign. And so Mary takes this expensive ointment, this nard, this oil, and she pours it all over Jesus' feet, anointing him. She sees in Jesus the king, the great king, the one who's worthy of all of herself. Now, why do I say that? It's an expensive ointment. Judas says we could have sold it for 300 denarii. That's almost a year's worth of wages. A, a day of labor would be one denarii. So it's a year worth of labor. You're talking about thirty to $40,000 of oil. It's about 12 ounces. And she pours all 12 of those ounces on Jesus' feet. It was likely the most valuable possession that she owned. Probably a family heirloom. And she saw in this moment, in a moment to honor Jesus, that he is king. He's the king of her heart. And no family heirloom that's worth more than a year's worth of, of wages is, is remotely close to this. He can have it all. He's her king. He's her Lord. Actions speak louder than words. And Mary's actions communicate to us that she sees Jesus as a king. Do you see Jesus as a king? Worthy of all of, your, of what you own. Do you see Jesus as a king, someone who's worthy of your entire life? Secondly, Mary's actions communicates not only that Jesus is a king or that she sees him as a king, but that she sees Jesus as a savior. We pick this up in verse seven when Jesus begins to interact with Judas and he says to him, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In Mary's act, there's this sense in which she's anointing him, preparing him for his death. When people would die, they would wrap them up and they would, they would put oils all over the body of the, of the deceased person to, to kind of mask the smell of what it was. We, they didn't bury them, they put them in tombs. And so Mary is very fit and understands how this process works. And why does she understand how this process works? because she did it not many days ago before then when she buried her brother Lazarus. So when she puts this oil around Jesus, this fragrant perfume, she's actually preparing him for a burial. Now why does she think that there's a burial? 
because Jesus said it himself. He said that he would go and die for his people, and she believed him. And so in this act, as she's anointing him with oil, she's seeing, I'm preparing him for his burial, where he will die on my behalf. Jesus sees, or Mary sees in this moment that Jesus is not only a king, but he's her savior. And it gets very intimate here. There's a last perspective that this act communicates. Mary sees in Jesus herself. That sounds strange, but I want you to use your imagination by looking at verse 3 once again. The last statement that is made is that the house was filled with the fragrance of, her, of the perfume. You, you might have heard it said that smell is the most powerful sense in regards to memory. That when you smell something that reminds you of your grandma's house, you smell something that reminds you of a favorable moment, that, that the sense of smell is that most powerful trigger of your memory. And in this moment, the room is filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but there's something even more intimate. That fragrance is all over Mary's hair. The smell of Jesus is all over Mary herself. Have you ever been to a campfire and you sat around the campfire and, and you just have a great time, but man, it's smoky. And you go home and you take a shower and the next morning you wake up and guess what? Your hair still smells like the smoke from that campfire. How long did that smell last in Mary's hair? So when she left that room, she smelled her hair and she said, it smells like Jesus. You see, Mary understood that not only is Jesus king, he's her savior. And the fact that he's her savior is that this reality that we've already sung about today is that I am united to Jesus. That his, his, his conquering of death, his death, his resurrection has united me so much so that I smell just like Jesus. Jesus sees, or Mary sees in Jesus herself. We sang the king of glory and of grace one in himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. This is the anthem of Mary's heart in this moment. She smells like Jesus because she knows this is what Jesus has done. Friends, this is the hope of the Christian faith. This is the heart of the gospel that despite your sins, despite your wrongdoings, despite your indifference, despite all you have done and left undone, that Christ in his mercy and his grace through his life and through his death and through his resurrection has made you one in him and that you can smell like Jesus, not because of anything you have done, but because of what he has done on your behalf. We see that Mary sees in Jesus a beautiful savior, a king, one with one which she cannot die. So let me ask you, how do you see Jesus? 
I want to press you. Do you see in Jesus someone whose challenge angers you beyond no end? If so, I want you to begin to hate him. <laughs> Seriously, stop with this indifference. He's going to challenge you. Do you see in Jesus, like Judas saw, an object to be used for your own personal gain? I want you to see that if you do, you actually hate him. And I would ask that you'd stop objectifying him. But there's also an opportunity that you can see in Jesus the way that Mary saw him, as a king, as a savior, one in whom she can be united to. This moment, this day, you can see Jesus in that same light. My friends, Jesus is a good and faithful savior, worthy of all that we have to offer. Our life, our belongings, our children, are everything. He's gracious, he's merciful. If this is how you see Jesus, trust him the way that Mary did. Let me pray. Our Father, it is true that we can often be um, pretty bad with you. That we can sometimes even be indifferent and it's largely due to the fact that we're not even spending time with you or interacting with you or seeing you. And so, yeah, we can be indifferent. But when we interact with you, Lord, we know that you're gonna challenge us. You're gonna meet us. But that you can meet us with grace. Indeed, you do meet us with grace and we are thankful for the grace you've extended to us. May we hold to the view that Mary did, that you are king, you are our savior. You are the one in which we are united to by faith. Pray this in Jesus' name.